podcast a very special episode this week we have a very special guest for a very special purpose um and he's so special isn't he he is he is Aww. tell us how special you are i'm amazing i i am that's not special that's amazing it's a two different i'm i i feel i feel when people use the word special too often that that's that winky special he's special oh he's and you know the, i don't mean it that way i'm okay. not all heads turn back to matt how do you mean it <laughs> we, our guest this week is nate Ryder of the average intelligence podcast hello He's returned with us to do our very special john williams episode yes um, we had originally this this idea and concept had birthed from wanting to talk about pop culture composers with nate and then we realized there's so much john williams we can't really talk about him and other people we kind of just got to focus it yeah so the goal is to do more than one of these episodes with other composers touch on danny elfman even modern ones like Hans zimmer but for today we're just kind of going to talk about john williams on the whole and And we're also up front if you want to hear about star wars not this episode Indiana Jones, also not this episode. It's just there's too much just with those movies that we'd never get to anything else. So we're going to focus and on the one And then it would turn into a review also. And this yeah. is not necessarily a review because I think if anyone uh, thought we were going to criticize John, review, uh, John Williams for his work, uh, it, they'd probably hang us. <laughs> I mean, there's flaws. There's got to be flaws somewhere. Flaws. He's but, not well, perfect. Well, but let me get... We shall get this out of the way. Star Wars and Indiana Jones are completely iconic. And not a single person in the world doesn't know the music, even if they've ever seen the movie. Well, We're... that's a good point. That's a good place to start off because yeah. most of his films are kind of iconic. Perhaps yeah. not to the same extent as those two, uh, which is why we're trying to stay off them at the moment. But either way, the thing about John Williams is theme. It always comes down to theme. It's always recognizable, almost instantaneously. It gets stuck in your head. Yeah. You whistle it on your way to work, on your way back from work. And even if you go years, life. With, even if you go years without hearing those soundtracks, you go back and listen to them, and you remember it like it was the day after you heard it. Exactly. Um, it's also because pr- basically everybody under the age of forty-five has been raised on his movies as well. He has been prolific for decades. This guy's forever. Yeah. He's almost timeless at this point. He's in many ways. He's the Beethoven of this generation, and I'm not even. I'm not even uh, overstating that. No, yeah. I think you're absolutely and his, right. And his importance to the movies he's worked on is indelible. You, If you were to take most of his movies and replace it with a different soundtrack, the movie is almost destroyed in many ways. Well, it's, it's, You can't separate them. The idea of the opening crawl of Star Wars without the music yeah. would be boring and pointless. Yeah. Like, that yeah. sweeping score is what makes that intro so epic. Uh, um, one of my favorite things is a teacher to prove the importance of the soundtrack showed uh, a scene from a movie where, uh, uh, with a different soundtrack where it was a woman just nicely swimming and there's this nice little floral arrangement playing, floral arrangement, excuse me, but like, you know, upbeat orchestral arrangement playing and she's swimming and playing and waving to people and it's like, oh great, and then she played it with the proper soundtrack where it's dark until and everybody just goes, Gah! Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
it's um, a completely different movie. That's, uh, that's, it's amazing how little you need to recognize John Williams. That's the other uh, amazing thing about him. And that's one of the first things you really notice about him. He creates a signature for his movies. That's that's the only way I can really phrase it. Because it's a, it's a theme work that he builds into the entire storyline of the movie. Uh, something as simple and as iconic as the from Jaws to the, the sweeping bit of, of E.T. to the fanfare of Star Wars. He, not Star Wars, um, Superman. They're both fanfares. In both fanfares, yeah. People have fanfares. He creates an initial idea, and it's his signature move for that movie. It's his signature idea. And that permeates the rest of the movie. And in, in his sequel work, it permeates everything. It becomes the main idea. The main... Well, see, this is the thing. The, I, the ideal, I think, for any composer is to achieve that. As you go from film to film, film, you want it to have a life unto itself. Otherwise, it's not going to stand out in a crowd. So that should be the goal of almost every single composer out there. It's just kind of sad that not every composer is able to achieve it. Because of, I think, the inherent difficulties with composition. Well, and how much has to be done. Well, the thing is... When you have all that, you, you end up putting all your emph- all your emphasis, all your work into the instrumentation, into making sure that you, you want to put a violin section there instead of a flute section and all that other stuff. You, it's easy to lose sight of your theme. Well, John Williams doesn't. Well, we also talk about how, because we have done other soundtracks, some movies just don't stick with the proper theme well enough. Like, we t- had good things to say about the Wreck-It Ralph soundtrack and that the score parts of it were very good, but there was not enough enough connectivity to the main theme. It fell short on some parts. Or like when we reviewed Pacific Rim. The problem with Pacific Rim is it all started to sound the same. It was too much reprisal of the pra- yeah, past Yeah, we've only styles. reviewed three Impulse soundtracks, period. Two yeah. were movies, one was a video, video game. game yeah. it's, it, Pacific Rim and... And Halo might have been the highest quality of all of them. Perhaps, it's but even tough. then, the problem was still theme. Is yeah. that you wind up going like, oh yeah, it's, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's kind of beautiful too. I guess I'm supposed to feel that this is kind of ominous and whatnot. But, but in the, at the end, connection. Yeah. yeah. Well, where's, the video game isn't there going to have to be repetition because they don't know how long you're going to be playing a particular. Well, in scene? in some cases, and actually, it's permeating video games more. They're actually trying to create not just different parts of stages with different types of music. But they'll have silence. Silence is becoming a major aspect of a lot of video games. Proper use of silence is very important. Yeah, Where I mean, if you want to create something that's high action, fair. you introduce it with music. But when he's actually fighting, when they're actually doing something, uh, the player is really only hearing the rat-a-tat-tat of the machine gun well, or the explosions or yeah. the swords the, clanging. There was a soundtrack, like that. There's a soundtrack that I've wanted to bring up, and we're not going to go into it much here, but that I think Steve would like, because it does have the very overture and reprisal of themes with the Mass Effect soundtrack. They have a main theme for Mass Effect that's very sci-fi and very much permeates the theme and very, kind of feels John Williams-y in a way. Yeah. Dun-da-dun. Dun-dun. You know, it's Halo. Of, they did yeah. actually do this sort of idea of, of choosing a, a main tone. theme at some point. The, the problem is of, of exactly it's, it's how it's stated in yeah. the end. Like, is it highlighted such to the end that you're going to repeat it right. uh, throughout? Does it does it have the capacity to be repeated throughout without kind of getting a little bit tiresome after a while? And a perfect example of where Williams takes a very simple idea and makes it the core is Superman. Dun, da, 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 dun, da, da. I mean, it is in every single part of that movie, you're hearing reprisals and reconstruction of that. 
whether it's Lex Luthor, whether it's in the Fortress of Solitude, whether it's his running away from an right. exploding parrot. It's the same notes in the end, same rhythm, but it can sound heroic, it can sound foreboding, it can sound romantic, it can sound harrowing, all of that, all of that by just the same melody. Well, that's, recom- that's skilled recomposition. Yeah, well, recomposition is kind of his thing. I mean, that's how he's made such strong themes in so many different movies. You know, I mean, like for example, and th- I want to I want to bring up some movies because this way we can kind of flesh out our discussion a bit because we're we're jumping into mostly his one-offs. Some of these movies had sequels, but the the initial movies were the ones that mattered or the ones that he composed for. Like for example, my favorite John Williams soundtrack of all time, and a lot of people forget how impactful it was until you re-listen to it mm-hmm. is the Jurassic Park soundtrack yes it is my favorite John Williams theme and as me and Steve were listening to the main theme and then listen to the, the theme for the title of when they first see the item welcome to Jurassic Park he recomposes that theme so beautifully so many times even though it's repetitive it's brilliant every time because of how it's recomposed it's a lot of uh, work with changing the instruments that's one thing he loves to do, and it does a great job when you hear a cello instead of the violin playing something, or when you hear horns actually taking over a string section. It really changes the entire tone of, of the theme he has created. At the same time, he also likes to change up keys. Stating it in a minor instead of a major can do wonders to completely changing the mood of a piece. And That's true. It's Especially one... with Jurassic Park. I mean, Jurassic Park becomes one of those things where when it first is playing, it's inspiration. It's, look at what science has achieved. And then later, it's, look at what science has achieved. Yeah. And then it's, oh my God, science is going to eat us. And it, it, it's, it's... Essentially. Yeah. And, and Not in so many words, though. No. But it, the fact that he does that with music, and again, using the same da-da-da you know, vague ideas and then you change it up and, and make it foreboding or whatever. And uh, uh, just some of it is amazing. Well, uh, you were said, well, like even I would forget just seeing it in the theater for the first time and the and first thing and you're like, oh, this is gorgeous. I want to live there. You know? After some deliberation, I think I settled upon Jurassic Park as my personal favorite as well, only because it's so hard to choose between John Williams soundtracks. But yeah. I, I settled on this not only for the main theme itself, but also for some of the the content within the deeper parts of the sure. soundtrack, for specific scenes. Because, of course, you need to keep it original throughout as well. You can't just restate the same theme over and over and over again and recompose it, which he's still very good at doing. Either way, you have to come up with new themes, you need to come up with themes that, even though they may reference the primary theme, they're still very independent. Fearfully independent. Well, think about with Jurassic Park also, like, this is a song called Eye on Eye, or Eye to Eye. It's the iconic scene where the T-Rex can't find them because they're not moving, and then his eye is in the passenger side window, and the iris grows and shrinks, and it's just like, Mm -hmm. hearing that music, you picture that scene so well. I think it was also used in movie posters. Uh, oh, yeah, quite. sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like the idea that, you know, you heal Duel of the Fates from episode one. Regardless of how you feel about that movie, everyone pictures that fight between Darth Maul and Qui-Gon Jinn. That fight was yeah. so well choreographed, and that song was so well composed. Regardless of how you feel about that film, that moment is still as epic as Star Wars ever was. Yeah, certainly. And this theme work also, uh, one of my favorite aspects, because Superman is... If not my favorite, my second favorite of, of scores he's done. I, I really love the work that he does when he takes that Superman theme, that fanfare that represents the hero, and reinvents it as Lex Luthor's theme. 
showing the parallel, the complete parallel to the two characters, and it. and and it did something great because that high fanfare, that high energy, that larger than life character got uh, shown on its on its on its flip side as that high energy, larger than life villain, the true perversion of what Superman represents, and the music reflects that. That's almost an example of what I was talking about, though, because, yes, it does reference the primary theme, but it also is independent in the end. And you recognize it, on it its as own. being yes. something individualistic. Yeah. And even though we said we're not going to go into too, into too much detail with this, the Star Wars soundtrack did that as well. There is Luke's theme, and then there is the Imperial theme, and they are very independent. Even though certain little phrases here and there may sh- be shared the between the two. The original Star Wars is, I mean, as anybody who knows me on Twitter as Jedi N8, uh, it's Star Wars is too important to me. And the first one, the original, the one that was just Star Wars until we made it a new hope. Uh, uh, that alone is beautiful to me and perfect. And yes, there is the main fanfare, the main opening crawl and all that. And then there's Luke's theme of hope and 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 optimism and I you know, it's such a also, dichotomy that's right. literally what but it also is. there's a bit of a depressing depression in it because he feels stuck he wants hope he has it he's looking at the two sons but at the same time he knows he's stuck on Tatooine and then from there you know the other themes that get into there uh, to me it, it's that one and of course the Superman theme are pretty much shoved in my head as too important and I, I can't like if you want to see me cheer up, play those music, play the music for me, and I'll like perk up because I I will love listening to it. Yeah, well that's the other thing about the content of these films. You know when you're comparing Star Wars with some of the other films that he's done, Star Wars of course is is the epic. It's it's the quintessential epic. Yeah. I mean there is there is evil and there is good. So it, it's it's almost fun for him to play around with that dichotomy. Yeah. The the. Yeah. The obvious evil theme that anyone would have to be shut away from society for their entire life to not know that that is evil. Well, also the thing about Star Wars that's really great as a movie, briefly, is that it's that, it's that, because we have to keep it brief or we'll never get to anything else, is that good versus evil in the first movie is so simple. It gets complicated after in the subsequent movies because there's more to it, but that pure Luke is good, Obi-Wan's good. Darth Vader is evil right. until you find out there are more lines is so perfectly done that when the other movies introduce the father element and all this other stuff, you go, oh my God, yeah, well, now there's more to it, you know? And also, right. he also does an excellent job of actually taking those original themes and blending them together into that high hope and low end scariness and doing such amazing still, things. All that though is still keeping in line with with the epic, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For for Star Wars. Well, I, I ain't think, arguing I that. think but since we're already let's go back to truly the the thing that made John Williams a name anybody cared about. And it, it has to be Jaws. The first blockbuster movie that came out. That's the one everybody will point to because it was a movie that was just a shark movie. And nobody really knew it was supposed to be maybe a horror movie, but it was. But it came out in '75 and it blew people away. It was this gigantic summer movie. It created the blockbuster. Without Jaws, there would have been no Star Wars the way it was. That makes it, a lot of sense. And stuff. that of kind of thing. And then when you realize again, his soundtrack alone makes that movie. That shark is not threatening without that. Well, that just a little bit up. of history here. I mean, of yeah. course, when you're talking about Jaws, that's that's absolutely true. It is the first blockbuster because you had you had a little history 
in the 50s and the 60s of movies that would come out released as thrillers, perhaps as horror film, films, obviously survival films. But the problem with some of the scores uh, for these, you know, kind of second-rate films at the time is that even though they, they're... Their only job was just supposed to scare you. So when you bring in a, a score, it often wouldn't be this grand sweeping score. It'd be, it would be kind of a cookie cutter thing. Yeah. It would just fit the bill. That's why Meyer you could almost watch. Villain. Yeah, you could watch like ten of these in a row and be like, eh, I don't really remember the theme necessarily. Right. Some of them stand out, but that's how how much work the actual composer was willing to put in for such a, yeah. a fleeting job. And then you get Jaws, and I mean, so much money went into yeah. it. They well, needed something that captured pri it. Prior to Jaws, the only other th soundtrack that stands out as special would probably be Psycho. Yeah. Oh, With the absolutely. shrieking... Yeah. Well, actually, the, the, yeah. the Alfred Hitchcock... So you remember, I'm talking yeah. about, like, grade no, B... The grade B side. horror, yes. Yeah, Alfred so Hitchcock was on a different level. Those things, you know... That's true. It, it is They had their own but, history. The 50s yeah, and 60s is still The original great House on Haunted Hill, even with Vincent Price... Kind of a lame movie, and the music is just there to be spooky right now, and then... <laughs> dun, 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 yeah, no, exactly. No. Oh, he's hanging! Yeah. Uh. Well, the thing about also with Jaws is that I love is that theme, the Jaws theme that everyone knows, mm -hmm. the fact that it just starts with what? Two chords? Two chords. It is such... It's two notes. Two yeah, notes. Two notes. <laughs> the fact that, that a man created... To, well, not created, but used two notes to create an icon and to scare the crap out of everyone yeah, it is so brilliant is beyond this, comprehension i agree 100 percent. that's the, that is the brilliance of john williams i could describe this straight on the air take any two notes on the keyboard that are right next to each other and alternate them back and forth and you are a musician you are you are you are playing the jaws soundtrack that's yeah. it <laughs> and and that theme it's like you're right you play that scene where the woman's swimming without the jaws theme you have no idea what it is but the minute you play that theme you everyone knows yeah and oh, it, stuff's about to go down. Right, and that's it. Whether it's a shark or not, you know the minute the da -da plays that it's clearly not a good day for this woman. No matter how wonderful she seems right now, she is not ending this on a good note. It also showcases uh, uh, another thing I saw that Williams does, which is he, at times, chooses an instrument for his characters, or an area of an instrument for his characters. And the only time he really represents that sound is when the character is interacting with his, with his, uh, his, his over score, his, his main theme work. Of course, and that characters... can't be any more obvious than those two notes being the shark. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the shark's theme. When he's there, that will play. There's more to the, that. When the other the characters get introduced, they have their own instrumentation yeah. associated with them. He really doesn't just do one overarching theme. Everybody has their own theme. Right, and we'll get deeper yeah. into this as we go from one character to another and deeper into the films themselves. But, of course, we do know that the popularization of John Williams is mainly bent on that main theme. That's yeah, that's yes. what everybody knows. Everyone remembers the main, from main themes from yeah. all... Like, when we were listening to the E.T. soundtrack, like, I remember parts of it, I don't remember parts of it, but when we listened to the end credits and they restated the main theme, I went, oh yeah, of course. Right. Which is why it's not only, you know, magnificent from an artistic standpoint, it's also really great salesmanship. You know, that's yeah. that signature that John's talking about. He throws in this 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 main theme, and he intersperses it throughout the film. Again, that's what should what every great composer should do, but it's very easy to lose sight of that sometimes as you're getting really, really deep into, you know, the nitty-gritty and all the little instrumentation quirks. Well, you talk about composers also, and some of them very memorable for their work and, and the movies they're related to, but some 
aren't as much. But the thing about John Williams is the movies that he's involved in, you hear a part of it and you remember an iconic scene. Like when we were listening to the Ed Credits theme, I pictured Boy on Bike with Alien going past the moon. Because that's one of the most iconic scenes, A, in movie history, and B, for sure, in E.T. Well, that's where we're going to speak to the fact that Steven Spielberg has been a huge friend to John Williams. Yeah, they've his, done so his, much work his, together. Oh, his, well, that's why they work magically together. That's the only way to put it. But you have to talk about the order of the way things work here. This is not like any other review we've, that we've done where uh, you have an artist comes up with an idea, wants to release it as their own work. This is their own personal art. John Williams' whole career is based on working off of other people. The second you have a writer or director who comes up with their concept and gives the pitch, then it's John Williams' idea to make it come to life. Yeah. He needs yeah. to work off of that idea, and I think that's the real talent. Because we yeah. could say, we could all day, we could talk about all oh, the brilliance of John Williams. That's the true brilliance. That's, that's the core component. Knowing the plot, knowing the character, knowing it intimately, and then having a vision that he rings true to throughout. That, that's a key that almost blows my mind when you think about it, is because you know... The many people he's worked with, I, I can't imagine Steven Spielberg goes up to him and goes, I'm kind of thinking this scene might have a, you know, a, this kind of the, theme to it. Yeah. I, I kind of see him just yeah. handing a tape to right. Williams and going, exactly. make it better. Exactly. <laughs> right. And, that's just, and, and so he should have this film. throughout other areas of the music world where people might not trust the composer being like, oh, I'm looking for something kind of like this. But John right. Williams, you'd take it for granted. Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and then that's the weirdest part, because when they're shooting these movies that are now iconic and the, the theme song and the, the soundtrack is so part of it. It wasn't there. It wasn't in mind when they shot the scene. It was, I, I hope they do something cool with the music on this part right. where, I, where he really gets what I'm going for in this theme, in this scene. And, and but John course, Williams has done that. He didn't always have the credibility that he has now. Right. It had to start somewhere. I'm sure Jaws was a crucial turning point. Oh, and sure. then oh, Star Wars was probably the next big clincher well, in his entire career. Well, he had done a ton of movies, uh, TV stuff. Oh, yeah, he did a lot. Lost yeah. in Quite a Space bit. and other things that I But again, remember it, was, right it was the birth of the blockbuster yeah, that, yeah, that sure. made... Well, yeah, Jaws, they've said in plenty of places, and that's why I got a video game and tons of sequels that stunk, is <laughs> Jaws was the blockbuster or you don't even I worked at GameStop when the Jaws game came out and I went so you play as the people killing no you play as the shark what well, of course <laughs> well because I want because who wants to play as the people nobody, no, nobody gives a crap about Quinn they the wanted main, him to get eaten he was the main character yeah. but it's just Bruce but yes. but it's because no, that summer was Bruce oh really yeah that was the name of the shark I didn't his know his name that. was Bruce they, yeah. that, was a, that was what they named, named the giant uh, animatronic the, yeah the giant animatronic that didn't work oh, I had there's, no a, there's a there's a um a documentary called "The Shark Is Still Working," okay, uh, that you should watch because part of the part of the thing is the shark was supposed to be all over the movie, but the 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 damn thing kept seizing up and breaking because it wasn't built for being in water. Yeah. So they just uh, they so, just made a fin. So so basically, yeah, Spielberg was like, "Oh, all right, you know what? I'll just show it as little as possible." That's why it's shot from the shark's point of view because the shark it, itself ends up looking really fake. It was the classic diver with this with a fin on his back, right? <laughs> No, they actually. I mean, they would still use it, but you would know you wouldn't have to use the moving mouth or anything. You would just have to move it underwater. See that right there? That's just so simple. The shark comes toward you. You have fear. You see the fin. I mean, imagine how many thousands upon millions of sailors have experienced this in the past. You see the shark. It's coming toward your boat. Holy crap! What are we gonna do? That that 
the the fin thing alone has caused the death of a lot of dolphins because people <laughs> no, see a true. fin. Oh, that's and, right, yeah. And they go, oh my god, it's a shark. It's like, oh no, it's a dolphin. That's a shame. <laughs> um, but they had different fins, but huh, that's yeah, a shame. Yeah, but it's I, just... If you're not paying attention, you just see a fin out of the water. You're not going to sit there going, out oh, of the notch is completely wrong. I'm not in the open ocean a lot, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, also the idea that Jaws, like, it was actually a problem. Jaws made sharks far scarier than they actually were. Yeah. They're, they're carnivores, but they're, they're not, they're they're not, not they're... going to kill people. More people. They don't do. seek out And if you're in a steel boat you know you're probably pretty good you know these of course this these weren't tugboats little tugboats right and apparently this shark had a bit of a vendetta and the truth true, is if true people fact get... uh more people die from uh, uh deep fry deep frying turkeys on thanksgiving a year than in shark attacks yeah. across the world. More people die Wait, from like getting hit in the head that year or yeah. in the future yeah, no, down no. the road from a heart attack. Dude, we get yeah. we get like a couple. No, there are a lot. Of we people get a couple a, a couple dozen people a year taking a frozen turkey, throwing it into a deep fryer, and killing themselves because <laughs> wow. it blows up. It just, yeah. yeah, what an that's, what an that's, answer that's, to giving thanks. That's more dangerous than sharks. You know, because we're coming up on Thanksgiving, so why not get in the yeah. season? It's, you know, death yeah, by hell. John Williams has a fantastical mind, and that's why he was able to achieve a lot of what he was able to achieve. It's but just, it's, the, the idea it's that... It's exaggeration. That's definitely part yeah, of the salesmanship, too. Now, because of Jaws, that's why we always were reporting when someone's attacked by a shark. That's why we have Sharknado and, and Sharktopus and, and Shark... To, to, and Sh- Sharky Are you making the alleg- allegation that John Williams... Sharkyopteryx were well, not big not John Williams. Are you saying that, that he single-handedly instilled the fear of sharks? <laughs> uh, the book and the movie basically made people a lot more scared of sharks than they yeah. need to be. Because yeah, as, as pointed out, sharks don't seek people out. Usually if they do eat a per- attack a person... It's because they're bleeding. No, it's... It, well, that or because they're on a surfboard and they think they're seals. Because from the bottom, they see a like, silhouette, yeah, you know, like and it kind of looks vaguely. So, that, you know, because they don't have the best eyesight. Yeah. And they don't know what we are. We're not we're not aquatic. Well, slight, uh, slight pop culture tangent. I like the idea that because of Jaws and some other movies, Mythbusters actually tested the theory that if you punch a shark, it'll go away. And which, just watching yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that. Which, just yeah. watching that. Watching Jamie Heineman in a wetsuit with a breathing mask punching sharks was... Yeah. Brilliant. That is true. Uh, anything that will screw up their senses, because uh, they're mostly going by smell a lot of times. Yeah. Um, or some of them have actually a bit of the ability to do electroshock kind of sensations, but it's all in the, in the tip of their nose. A good punch of that will screw up what they're doing. It's effectively, you know, you know, it's kind of somebody re- slapping you and you're not paying attention. It's a reset yeah. button. Right. Yeah. It's the ultimate myth buster. It's like a fear buster. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. just, like, pop the bubble of shark fears. Yes. That's of course, awesome. the, 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 the joke is, yeah, sure, punch him in the nose, and if that doesn't work, hit him in the eye with your stump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back, uh, so back to music. Here's the, here's the thing. John Williams, he was able to achieve that with sharks, you need to take some kind of vision to say, hmm, what what is going to define a shark and define that fear? Like, As I said, it comes down to just the 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 uh, suspense. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But there is definitely salesmanship there because yeah. you, you if, if you're uh, defining a generation, not that he necessarily set out to do that, but you need to make people think of that from then on for people to bring it up in in just party humor when someone approaches you from behind your back you're going to play that theme it gets oh, a little bit yeah. ridiculous after a while that but theme that's has been used how much it pervades yeah. Yeah. now just to gloss over Star Wars really quick there was a little bit of salesmanship there too considering that the movie 
again, a lot of people had doubts at the time. Sure, that it came nobody out. had done anything right. like that before. All the actors were very, very ambiguous as to how this thing was going to turn out, considering all the ridiculous stuff they had to do. You with listen to the scene. interviews with Carrie Fisher. She was like, uh, like yep. she talks about how they all had no and idea what they were doing. Each and every single one of them, when they sat down there for the premiere, they heard the opening theme of John Williams, and that's what sold them on the thing they had been working on yeah. for previous months. That's pretty astounding. Sure. That's salesmanship. He can he can clearly enhance a, a questionable <laughs> idea. I mean, well, there's so much truth in that. Jumping ahead to the modern before we go back, Sir John Williams' newest album is for the Book Thief, a new movie that's in third theaters right now. I don't know anything about this movie at all, but we listened to a couple of tracks on Spotify of the soundtrack, and I kind of want to see it just because I love his music, and it seems like a very suspenseful and dramatic movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's also and why... that's the purest of marketing when when someone who's as brilliant as him can make me want to go see the movie. I have no idea what it's about. Which it's is also, why it's also a can... trade, though. You know, he's been doing it for a really, really long time. <laughs> so at some point, you know, you you start to recognize what really does sell in the market. Sure. Considering he, you know, it could be timing. A lot of it, is, a lot of careers in general do come sure. down to timing. So there's mm. there's that. Having talked about Jaws and Star Wars you know, working with something that is challenging or questionable. How about something that is just a naturally good story from from the get-go? And we have quite a few of those. E.T. E.T. I think that's a good place this to start, is... considering time frame. We're moving into the early Should 80s Should we do here. Close Encounters first, or E.T. first? I think E.T. is just a, okay. an easier, better, Also, Close Encounters story. rings some of the same points that I would make from Jaws. It's, it's a very, very brief theme, and yet yeah. it's able to be recomposed, you know. Right, and and, yeah. and 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 then you I play guess, it lower with tuba. Right, and I guess Close Encounters is meant to be too realistic. It's it's truly meant to be what we assume would happen if aliens to make came contact to with us. Yeah, now, Cer- yeah. certainly right. from the seventies point of the view, polar but, opposite of Star Wars. In that right, effect. exactly. Yeah, sure. But so e. to get to ET, ET itself was supposed to be a uh, on the fence as to what. A buddy film. A, a, a sort of a buddy film. Sort of a feel it was film. Honest, It is a buddy film. No, absolutely. It, it, was, it was also a, a film to teach children to, to expand beyond their childhood fears. It was to actually help children grow up. Well, it was up. also... There's a lot of oh, they dark... Added a, they added a lot into that movie. This is why I think E.T. is a really good place to move. Because, you know, not that I'm even putting down Close Encounters. Close Encounters is a great film, but I'm not quite as emotionally attached to those characters as I am to E.T., to that kid. A few people to are, E.T. and Elliot. E.T. and Elliot. The, the connection is so strong. This is what he has to work off now. It's a great storyline. All John Williams has to do is enhance it, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, the great it's thing about E.T. Really. also, when you look back at it, is it's it's a kid's movie. At heart, it was made to be a kid's movie, yeah. but there's a lot of not-kid themes in it. Oh, well, yeah, you get, parts you, of it are terrifying. And the basis yeah. of it is... Parts the basis of it is You get divorced, you have fears from your mother, which is always kind of... Alcohol. You know, yeah. The, the basis of it, though, is... The government. To not yeah. judge <laughs> and to, to be under, and to try and be understanding and to expand your mind. You know, to see this creature and be terrified of it, but then you realize it's just lost, it's just a baby, and to then try and help it. You know, it's growing up. That's it's a metaphor I, for growing up. That's, that's why this I is said. the perfect place to that's, go. That's this was, this yeah, but was I said a, it more concisely and where it made sense. Well, you had more time than I did. Oh, you're both pretty. So, <laughs> you move you. into <laughs> the next phase here. This is a movie that was written great, I think, from the get-go. I, I'm sure that... There probably could have been other soundtracks written to this film. The fact that you had John Williams doing it is just like the the perfect icing on the this cake. This is Spielberg's opus. Even he feels it's one of his most. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, uh, per, to use 
the Elliot and, and E.T. against the moon as a symbol for his own company proves how important it was to him. So yeah, the theme, as Matt was saying, that you automatically envision the boy on his bike and the silhouette uh, mm-hmm. whether, you know, either it's a beginning part where, where E.T.'s just showing off his powers or where they're all escaping from the government uh, with their guns, <laughs> not walkie-talkies. Or the, the attempt where uh, the the death and rebirth of E.T. You can still you, the whole thing well, Also, the great thing about E.T. from a writing perspective is that the Elliot, the boy, is written very... He has some character, but he's kind of a blank slate. And the reason is, is because he, Steven Spielberg wanted every little boy to go, that's me, I'm that boy. Not That's, that's, that's very and that's insightful, what, actually. And, and it's actually a precursor to a lot of video game story writing. Because a lot of video game story writing, the lead character in the early games was very one-dimensional because they don't want the character to be the character. They want you to be the character you're controlling. Right. And that's very much what Elliot was. You were Elliot. Whoever Which is why you I gotta are. give some credit to that, to that kid actor also, because he was able to, to bring out these these certain reactions uh, with everything that E.T. did, even when it comes out to the backyard scene and he yeah. sees him approaching. His fears, it's very much like any little kid's fears. Yeah. You're curious at the same time, so you don't run away and lock yourself in your room necessarily but you stay you try to figure it out but you're so hesitant because it's so unfamiliar all of that 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 simple little putting down the little bits of chocolate and and peanut butter it was Reese's Pieces that's right it was Reese's Pieces it was strike that M&M's wanted no part of it and then they went Damn it! <laughs> really? They didn't yeah. want a part of it? That's yeah, why he they, used Reese's. Yeah, they because went to M&M's. Because M&M's didn't want their stuff went, in the movie. And they were like, no, that, we don't why, want an alien either. Why would they decline that? Because Steven Spielberg wasn't Steven Spielberg yet. Again, oh, yeah, and what did he make at that point? He made Jaws, he made... But Close uh, Encounters made a lot of movies. Close Encounters, but it didn't was it? a weird sci-fi thing, and M&M's was like, eh, we're not doing that yet. It's weird. I'm, I'm sure people were on board with sci-fi by the early 80s. Uh, strangely enough, not even with that Star was that Wars. was a late sixties. Star uh, Wars took off, but it wasn't hesitance. the type of thing that people were still. It, nerds were not cool. Back nerds in the only became cool in the last decade, right? So, okay, so to nerds, say, but, but it was it was very apparent after all the successes in the seventies that you could do a great Bach, but also keep in mind, Et wasn't cute. Et oh was, yeah, he was kind he of had gnarly. the big eyes, but he was <laughs> he was designed to look. I hate to say it, he kind of looks like a scrotum. <laughs> uh, urge to be incredulous rising <laughs> it's trying not to be incredulous it's just one of those things where it's like you're telling me that you know the movie studios and major corporations don't believe in a thing even though all of the fans do it happens all the time even now he did it he went there he got incredulous I couldn't help it it's just one of those things with like modern movies it was movie. very apropos though don't in, in, in modern movies still like the superhero movies even with Avengers, people are still only sort of backing, and there's still such a tight news around it. You know, except for the major players in Marvel, there are places where, oh, well, we should do this movie about this. And they go, well, I don't know if people like it. You mean the hordes of people who are all over the internet saying how they like this thing? Right. And it becomes the matter, part B. Yeah. And, and, and the weird thing is, especially getting, I mean, to, to step into the Marvel movies where, where they're doing the characters, for the most part, correctly. They're keeping them as true to, to who they are at the core as possible. And then they're like, well, how should we do the Superman movie? Dark and mysterious. It's like, but that's not Superman. He's, no, you know, he's not dark and So it's that kind of thing where even the company that owns the character is like, well, Wonder Woman's too difficult to do. Wonder Woman. What do, are you kidding? She, 
You make Wonder Woman. That's how you do it. You just do a Wonder Woman movie. Yep. You know, do the character. She's an Amazon. She kicks ass. She's dressed in a bustier. You've got people behind you on that. <laughs> well, that's the whole thing. We did manage to turn this into quite the go, Going, going back, going back, there wasn't that lovable alien yet. He, he was the lovable alien. He was right. the starter he was that he, first. He, right. That's right. Just to take this back, you know, this is about John Williams, right? So John Williams, yeah. I guess maybe he too would have had like some hesitance there. Because I, the thing is, who was more popular, Steven Spielberg or John Williams by this point? Probably John Williams. Yeah. He would probably yeah. have had a little bit more behind him. Because remember, we're, we, we're leaving out a lot that we're choosing not to discuss, which is all the TV stuff that he did in the 60s. Steven Spielberg was getting movies. a name. Yeah. In, people were having to pay attention to him in terms of the fact that he was a powerhouse for making money. Because he at that, at that point, he'd also done uh, Raiders by then. By the time he did E.T., oh, Raiders, he did Raiders. Yeah, Raiders was out first. Um, so people paid attention. The man clearly had a, a pedigree going, you know, a... a Williams or Spielberg? Spielberg. Okay. So they had to pay attention to him. Williams at this point now, I, I think he was no. I think he was well-loved behind the scenes. I don't know how many people... Well, that's... In the industry, how many people In the industry, in the industry the he could do no wrong thing. at that point. But how I don't many know how people... many fanboys... Tru- I mean, I'm, I'm sure the fanboys knew his name, but I don't think it was the type of thing that even like well, this also, kind of... Also, rule of thumb, how many people know com- composers' names anyway? A lot of people do not keep up on this thing. Well, the, also this the is difference kind of is, in... in a pre-internet age, Steven Spielberg's name was on every poster in every theater that every person saw. Yeah. John Williams' name was there somewhere, but yeah, not as... it was as, a lot smaller, and it, it was, was at not the bottom. That's, that's, my, point. that's yeah, my point. That's my point. This is how people think of composers in yeah. general. They They... Yes, the music is there, but unless you're really in the business, you think of it as like, oh, that's the background stuff. You know, yeah. you're focusing on the visuals. That's why people go to see movies. It's more of a subliminal thing than anything else. It's very, very important, and you take it out, it's very noticeable, but that's just not where people's minds go. Right. It's, no. it's, it's a, it, not a it, spotlight will, job. Right. It, of course, with Superman, it, you will believe a man can fly, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but also, and I think people were beginning to realize, certainly between... The fact that it was really only a year apart between Superman and Star Wars, and that their main theme is a similar type fanfare. Uh, they're different, but, and I can tell you as a little kid, I would often blend them together by mistake, because yeah, I, they have very similar, highs. very high in the trumpets, see, see and, 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 you know, and the strings are in the same place. Kind that of could have also been the case, you know, it's his early, earlier work, maybe he was, you right. know, almost kind of copying yourself. It's, it's, it's... It's common to bank off of what popularized you. So, it, again, that could have been a marketing But, thing. I mean, also, it turns out, I mean, with Star Wars, the fanfare made sense. And Superman, even, I mean, if you look, you listen to the stuff from the radio days and the, the, the 50s, they would still, you could hear them giving him the trumpeted fair, fanfare where they were almost trying to figure out what John Williams did figure out. Yeah. For the Superman's theme. And then ever since John Williams made the Superman theme, past that, everybody's trying to write something that's indicative of it without being it because they didn't have the rights to use that's his theme. That's very true. Well, just, just a, a little, not a little side note about John Williams. Again, his influences, I think, are what's very Im- important here. His influences really harken back to, like, this late 19th century classical stuff, which, again, was not really what TV composers were doing around you know, the 50s and 60s, they were really banking off of more modern stuff. It was very much like, oh, I'm, I'm going to copy what was done last year and just try to stay with the game. 
John Williams actually was able to achieve something much more uh, impactful by going back further in time and, mm. you know, copying the stuff that, that Tchaikovsky was doing. You, you can find, like, ballet-esque work, because those were often very intricate pieces. It's very complex. That's what he brought to the blockbuster, which is probably why he's responsible for making the blockbuster. It kind of reminded people, hmm, I... This complexity really kind of affects me in a way. It adds to the complexity of the film. There's there's some weight there. Well, it, it gives it a history in and of itself. Well, exactly. if there's one thing John Williams can do, and of course I would speak to this bit, the he has so many songs he's created that when you hear it, you get a certain emotion emotion invoked yeah. so easily, like within notes. It's not even like you need the whole song. I mean, going back to Jurassic Park, when we were talking about the. The Welcome to the Island theme, version of the theme, the big trumpets and the big fanfare, you feel that sense of puffy chest pride like, this is beautiful. It's beautiful! Yeah. You know, and... You can almost put lyrics... A well, lot of his songs you can almost put lyrics to that yeah. mean the theme. Look at the island there, it is beautiful. That is how overbearing, like, in, yeah. in the best possible way, how yeah. overbearing that theme is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just to bring it back around, that's, that's because at the same time, he's also accessible. Yeah. Like, yes, he was going back in time and, and being very complex about what he was doing, but he's not inaccessible. That's the polar extreme of the stuff that was going on in the 50s and 60s. Some would be very straightforward and cookie cutter, and then the other extreme would be, you know, the people who had moved so far along in the musical tree that they were doing this atonal stuff, you know, like Penderecki, Ligeti. These were the composers for, for instance, the 2001 Space Odyssey soundtrack, yeah. which is not that accessible to a lot of people. No. Some people find it very grating to listen to. I don't like it's, a lot of Kubrick's soundtracks. Well, I do, but it's a different. If it's a different branch of my. Oh no, life I'm the same way. I'm with Steve. I like it also. Like yeah. I love Clockwork it's, Orange, but it's right. so different. It's right, moving. Else. It's eerie. It, in this, I'm I'm mostly talking about Eyes Wide Shut, which is. A t- oh. Uh, an the, example. The, the real reason that he he retained this accessibility in his grandiousness was was the choice of instruments. He would really just harken back to the core orchestra many times and then adapt it and change it up. Uh, E.T. is a great example. The xylophone work, the harp work is really subtle. It's something that you even said, Steve, that you've kind of forgot about because you haven't seen it or heard it in such a long time. Well, it- but it's... It's also the softer side of John Williams. For instance, when he brings out the harp, it's uh, there's very little else playing in the background. It almost at that point, you don't think grand orchestral soundtrack. You think something that that might come out a of more of an indie flick or something. Like yeah, that. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's soft, but even then, you have that dichotomy between the grand theme and then the soft, intimate, emotional sequence. Right. You well, want to feel something there. Why not? You know, go back to the bare bones instruments a harp well, is a very very uh simple instrument yeah. well it's not simple to, it's very difficult to play but it's delicate that's that's where it achieves oh, okay yeah but i mean speaking to the emotional side and the softer side i mean steve took on the very daunting task of listening to the schindler's list soundtrack which john williams also did hey i did too okay i hadn't realized you listened to it as well i listened to the main theme and then couldn't listen to the rest i couldn't do it i've seen the movie once it's one of the most heartbreaking movies i've ever watched and the soundtrack's a huge part of it just listening to the main theme even if you don't know the movie and just know the vaguestness about what it's about it's 
completely destroying. It, the, Heart wrenching. The main reason for this is it's violin. Who's the, the violinist? Itzhak Perlman. They yes. got Itzhak Perlman to do this. So one he was of one of the men. best violinists the... in the world. Yeah. He plays, he's, first of all, he's Jewish, so he had kind of a personal connection to the plot of the movie. Um, and also, he plays with, it's a fun little fact, he plays with Stradivarius. There are only 200 of them in the world, and his Stradivarius is from 1714. Wow. And it is one of, it, it's literally one of a kind. Yeah, one of kind. They say that these instruments, science, the scientists have gotten together to try to they figure out how to it. reproduce this well, sound. It's something about like the weather at the time that the trees were grown yeah. when the instrument was actually made. Uh, you know, well, they were all all, all of those were handmade. Those two hundred, right? That oh, was yeah. long that's the before. only way you would make them back then. Yeah, this yeah. Was one of the great. But that's why in the golden age. That's like a, a minor angry tangent. Angry white tangent is the, the the fact that so many instruments now are processed is so aggravating because the handmade instrument will. A friend of mine just made a mandolin by hand. He uh, used a mandolin impressive. building kit, so it wasn't completely from scratch. But he still built it by hand. And he said it was one of the hardest things he ever had to do. I had professors in college who they would have their own guy. The yeah. guy that they go to, like, okay, maybe they didn't make them instruments themselves, because often it would be very complex to make. But um, I had a professor who was an expert on Renaissance-era instruments. So mm -hmm. it would be kind of things that have sort of lost... Uh, lost use in a lot of modern music they're not in the modern orchestra but you would find them in like chamber and special cases and he was kind of an expert in these instruments so he would have this guy that he goes to to make these instruments for him been making instruments for him for 40 years wow. so clearly wow. he knows this guy's quirks they have a relationship yeah but you know. speaking back to schindler's list you have one of the greatest instruments ever made <laughs> played by one of the greatest instrumentalists ever in one, of, in one of <laughs> really? the most emotional Did you ideas. ever watch them make him? He was very careful. You should have seen the weather of when they got together and had the sex. This sounds like a very Jewish joke right now. Well, it's, it's not Perlman. <laughs> you think and and also, Nate has, comes from very Jewish I, heritage. I, I, yes, but I'm going... in a very Jewish neighborhood. I'm no longer... I'm, I'm, well, I'm M Jewish, but I'm an atheist. So, whatever you want to call me. <laughs> but the main theme of, a culture. Of, yeah. of Schindler's List was whatever the violinist wanted to do. Yeah. Oh, it was... And, like, what was the... We listened to the main theme and then something else. What was the other one that we listened to that was... And here's the thing. The other the most harrowing yeah. theme is Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was probably the worst camp uh by many accounts. And in... it was also one of the most disturbing scenes mm -hmm. yeah. ever. That's the one where the allegations have been made that there were actual showers that yeah. instead of water coming out would be lethal gas. Yeah. And they would put into it and begin the whole extermination sequence. So the movie takes... I they mean, were told they were I hesitate to use the word... I use the word tasteful lightly. But of course... They were trying to be as graphic as possible while also sort of turning it in the end, not quite showing, you know, the death. Because, for instance, people around camps, they heard rumors about these things, even within the camps. Yeah. So they had the fears. The fears were already settled. And, of course, at the end, they go in there and they think that that's the last final moment, especially when the lights turn off. Yeah. And in the background, you have this harrowing violin sequence. It's, it's a dark theme brought from... You know the recesses of Yiddish music uh, that goes back centuries yeah. and centuries, and it's it's used very very appropriately. The whole entire movie is is using that that Yiddish, uh, uh, what you would call it, the scale. Yeah. Uh, 
But that was one of those movies that when we're looking at the IMDb list, because, you know, we have the internet now and everything it leads back to IMDb if it's related to movies. Mm. When Schindler's List... When Schindler's List came up, I was like, really? Schindler's List? I don't remember. But then the minute I listened to it, I was like, oh yeah. Even though it's not all him, and the violinist has a lot of influence in the sound, it's still very clearly John Williams. It has John Williams. You know, I would actually argue that a little bit. Yeah. It was much less apparent to me in this film than almost any other. Because I, I accept John's theory that there's a signature John Williams out there, but it, I think he was very out of his element for uh, for the Schindler's List soundtrack. Well, I think... I because think... he doesn't often use that scale. Yeah. I, again, also... I, the scale escapes me because it's not very commonly used today. It's a very case-by-case kind of thing. But uh, it's perfectly appropriate for that film. Yeah, for sure. I, I never would have expected that he would do that. It's just, you know, you'd think he... maybe someone who specializes in it. He also does tend to actually work on the less dark area of movies. He, he doesn't... Well, the movies, yeah, he's going he's heroic. Such, I mean, he doesn't yes, do deep top uh, the the deep dark topics like Schindler's List too often. Well, yeah. and that's what I think he's revisiting. It seems like, at least from what I've read about the book Thief, is revisiting that kind of dark theme because it's World War Two, it's Nazis again. So, well, to some extent, he actually did revisit it in uh, Saving Private Ryan. True. Mm. Which, while still lighthearted, because eh, some of the heroes win in the end. Um, it, it still had Ryan. the idea. It's yeah, <laughs> someone survives. It still has that same idea of there's a lot of death and destruction. That and War there's really hell. yeah. It's the heroism that I think is what we identify John Williams with. And there is heroism in Schindler's List. Of course, Schindler is the hero. Yeah. But the clo- you don't get a fanfare. The closest thing you get to a fanfare in that film is, I didn't do enough. You did so much. Yeah. That's the best the winning line of the film, and and he's in tears the entire time. That's the closest you're getting to a fanfare yeah, yeah, in, sure, in the course. wake of what had just happened. Because there's no... That's... Well, it's also a test in... There are isn't always a happy ending. There, yeah. It's just happier than it could have been, but it's still not happy. It's, it's exactly. really hard to be light and fluffy for the Holocaust. And, that's and why he, I think he's out of his element, because yeah. you look at almost every other film that's he's fair. done. Yeah. You know, there's... There is that, that hope and that light at the end. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but then again, you could think about it. Empire Strikes Back had that dark note. I mean, that was one of the most depressing sci-fi endings. I mean, everything went wrong at the end of that movie. No. There was still hope. That's the whole thing. At the end of Empire Strikes Back, it was the most depressing, I guess, of the Star Wars. But the bad guy didn't win. The bad guys weren't... They were winning, but they were not winning 100%. It wasn't over, yeah. Schindler's List, the bad guys were kind of winning 100% for the majority of the even concepts of the idea. That's the thing there. I mean, throughout Empire, you you have these heroic sequences, you know, where there is kind of a fanfare going throughout the battle on on Cloud City and whatnot. And even if you look at the the very ending, they're trying to make it as upbeat. Yes, Han is taken away, but now we have Lando inexplicably wearing Han's outfit, flying off we're going to find him you know and luke has now just gotten his hand replaced and he's there with leia now pondering this information he's been given but it's looking out to the stars we're gonna be able to fix this we're we're that close that's the essence of the you're right yeah Yeah. that's true i mean there's there's no epic nature about schindler's list it's it's literally it's non-fiction it's it's the holocaust (laughs) yeah 
This what is, happening. is wacky there's no, there's no spinning this in a positive no. way. No, of course not. You no. wasn't Which supposed is why, to be. While you couldn't. Saving, it would be blasphemous. While yeah. Saving Private Ryan might be the closest conceptually, there was still the, the, the hope that they would do exactly what the movie well, because says. Because that was from the American perspective. Yes. So, of course, for us, there was a lot of, I mean, not in every case, I'm sure, but sure, we had that idea of, you know, rah, rah, go get them, you know, march I mean, into Europe. All of, all of, like, brother. three people in the movie survive. But... Yeah. The Ryan Spoiler survives. alert. Yes. Yeah. People yeah. died in the World War Two. And Rosebud's and, a sled. And and and, <laughs> and Darth Vader's Luke's father, so there's No he's them. not. Yeah, he is. Damn. Yeah. My favorite no, I, thing I looked, this it, is, I looked it up. Minor oh. minor Star Wars tangent. Can't watch it now. I love how on. how often the 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 I'm your father line is misquoted. Because it's not Luke I am your father. No. It's Luke exposition. I am your father. No, after no the actual line is no. no I, I am, am your, your father. father. Yeah, and that's no, it's not even that they misquote it; it's that they don't get the cadence, which yeah. is kind of the important thing. It's no, I I'm am your, your father. father. That's that whole like thing. no, you idiot. Right. I'm your father. But then I mean, we can get into misquotes all day. We well, that's we that's kind that. of part of the fandoms of anything, right? Yeah. Because it's easier to say Luke, I am your father, because if you just say I am your father, everybody's like, no, you're not. I met my my dad. I know my dad. Yeah, he's not you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like no, I'm I'm doing that movie. That movie. Which, which the one you know, Star Wars. Oh, in that Luke. Uh, shut up. <laughs> so yeah, moving on. Because yeah, Scotty beam me up or no? They did say Scotty beam me up. They never said beam me up, Scotty. Right. Didn't oh. they? Never once. No, a lot no. of episodes never I'd have once to check. No, in the original trilogy, in the original series, nor in any of the movies, do they say beam me up, Scotty. They say two to beam up, Scotty. Scotty. They say Scotty beam us up. Any variations, but they never huh. said that actual phrase of beam me up, Scotty. Same thing with huh. play it again, Sam. Well, paraphrasing, yeah. you know, what, what you're gonna do. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how <laughs> fans and movies work. No, that's how yeah. the, that's how the worldwide game of telephone works. <laughs> yeah. That's that's also yeah. true. Right, and um, then there's people just getting annoyed at the other fans going, "We know, stop it," you know. <laughs> so now we're fast forwarding through time here. I think I want to return to uh, Jurassic Park. Yes. So the thing about I'm not done with that. <laughs> well, the thing about Jurassic Park also for me as a kid is when that movie came out. First of all, Jurassic Park, I I, I don't do as much reading as I should. I've been reading more books lately, but unfortunately, I'd fall out of reading reading books just because I don't life. know. It's it, well, because of life. Well, it's also mostly because it's not my number one form of media. My number one form of media is music. Second is video games, and then I like reading And books. all of these are time-consuming, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. But the thing about Jurassic Park is that Michael Crichton wrote one of my favorite books. I love Jurassic Park. It's yeah. my number one. It's my favorite book of all time. Maybe only eclipsed by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. And it's just... When I heard they were making a movie about it, I was so excited. And when I saw the movie as a kid, dinosaurs... In a movie? Well, number one... It had never been done before. That number were done one. well. That's yeah. the key. They've well, been done, done well. before. It was the they level... They took an iguana and stapled a thing The level of technology mm-hmm. finally started catching up to what people wanted well, they did to the, do. Well, they did the wide shots of the big dinosaurs, so it, you couldn't see the detail. And then the close-ups were all animatronics, and right. brilliant animatronics. Yeah. When you go into the Toys R Us in Times Square and you see the T-Rex, and yeah, it roars awesome. the sound, sound effect from the movie... It still gives me chills. I don't know, but the old guy with the suit on had such an appeal, though. Don't yeah, you? oh sure, yeah. like in the old King Kong Godzilla, Godzilla movies with the claymation. That was that. Yeah, stop motion is not the guy in a suit, but the guy in this. I don't know. Godzilla is Godzilla. You can't. You gotta love. I it. Actually, truth you, be told, you get what you pay for. <laughs> they released a trailer for the new Godzilla, the new Japanese style Godzilla. Yeah, I'm kind of excited. I will see the the new American, but 
Japanese but it's in the Japanese style instead yeah. of the abomination. I, I, I was very young when the '98 movie came out, and it, it excited me once. It was, you know. it was awful. The trouble oh, is the design. I was on, ten. The design <laughs> on Godzilla was awful, and it, the movie was dumb, which is sad. And because part of the of problem is Godzilla movies are almost supposed to be dumb. Yeah. Because blockbusters, so does, blockbusters go full fun, circle. Dumb. Yeah. There are the great blockbusters, yeah. and then there are the. Uh, yeah. Then well, there's the, crank. That, that wasn't very well thought through for all the. The funny money, thing is, ja- Japan has been able. To make fun, interesting, entertaining Godzilla movies that still maintain the dumbness that was always inherent, even when they were being uh, 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 metaphorical. You know, the whole thing, the original was about... Uh, uh, the, the dangers Lucha. of nuclear... No, it was nuclear no. problems. It was yeah. a problem with the atomic bomb, because it yeah, was in the 50s. I got problems you know? with yeah. nuclear ain't one. No, it was the Ugh. idea that nuclear... Uh, nuclear, nuclear they were afraid that basically... Nuclear mutations would lead to, you know, story right. tall monsters eating us. Right, so, and so basically, it basically was, you know, hey, let's not use the atom bomb together. Yeah, it was right after Darwin and atom bomb, but, so but, they just put the two together. Diving back into Jurassic Park... Right. I don't That's th- why it was such a great thing. Really, it's analogous to Jaws in the same sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. to see it on a large scale, this is what this is what uh, animatronics can do now. And, 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 well, and also, the CGI, when you finally see the T-Rex running with the proper gait, because originally we had thought T-Rexes stood straight up with the tail dragging on the ground, and then, right, you know, it, it, around this time, they we realized... They figured out they run like ru- birds. Forward. They run like birds. We realized where, the way their hips were positioned that they were actually forward, and they were now effective predators, even though people think they're scavengers. But that's they're predators for the sake of our argument right now. So that they are leaned forward, and those arms are almost completely pointless, but they could now actually grab little things nearby because they're closer to the ground. But I am going to make a claim here, because they... There was a little bit of unbelievability about it. I mean, well, yes, perhaps compared the fact that there compared were dinosaurs to alive in modern times, yeah. No, the animatronics. Even oh. then, even then, it was not quite up to par for that. What we got, I think, even between the early '90s and the late '90s, there's huge advances. Huge, yes. huge. And I think that's one of the reasons why it needed a little bit of oomph, and that oomph came from John, John Williams. Williams. Yes. The second you hear that theme when the dinosaur, when you, when the giant brontosaurus is in front of your face, in the the journey to the island sequence yeah. and whatnot, it's overwhelming. Oh yeah. Brachiosaur. Yeah. Or Gallimimus. Look how they move like a flock. Yeah. They're flocking this way. Or the scene, <laughs> the, di- uh, the 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 entire scene work <laughs> of the kids and the raptors, which aren't actually velociraptors. Velociraptors are a lot smaller than that. Uh, actually, are... the, originally they were Deinonychus, and they were very small. They were uh, maybe four feet tall at the tallest. Later, they did actually find specimens that were taller, and they named them velociraptors. So we can have this argument. Okay. Uh, they, I always knew, ex- knew them as the two yeah. and a half, three foot tall ones. Yeah. Anyway, the the entire music mistake, that was there, were correct. The entire and the use of of silence that was probably one of his best things he mm. did in that. Yeah. The use of silence to punctuate the horror, and then to bring in the score. Well, that's the you know there's that uh, of course when you, the step when the water yeah. in, in the car yeah. when the glass of water starts to ripple a little bit. Boom. Very, very soft at that point. All you hear is a tiny, soft little flourish going with the upright basses and the cellos, the deep strings just going, right? Yeah. As you see the ripple. And it slowly starts to build a little more, a little more. It's, it's, it, even that it is, is sort of a theme. A little bit, a little bit in a way. Conceptually. Conceptually, wow. yes. 
but just in the way of building up that there is a terror approaching you. Well, just like you mentioned with the the title sequence and the, the title oh, sequence, the the, the th- what was it, thirty forty seconds something. The the very first track on the soundtrack is literally just the title and the Jurassic Park icon is so haunting and beautiful at the same time it's yeah richard hammond really did not get a good publicist when designing the theme for jurassic park (laughs) it was that's that's you're gonna have the chilling and ominous thing for your theme park for children (laughs) you you don't use i mean yeah t-rex is iconic but you don't make them that monstrously looking come on man yeah yeah, i like the logo i thought the logo was solid but of course that's the achievement of the film is that you're looking at this logo which is kind of appealing right it's got that prehistoric feel to it it's got that and then and then the black red white the music is so haunting i honestly would stay it's one of the most haunting things in the film and this is the first 30 seconds it's it's ominous it's it actually uses a kettle drum uh alongside i think an upright bass and then this some variety of flute that is made to sound very prehistoric, uh, like something a caveman would have used or something like that. And it all just functions to provide this 30 seconds of, you're going to get some shit going down, you know? It's but coming the great, up. But the great thing about that is it's so haunting, and then it's into the theme, which is not. It's uplifting and inspiring, Well, that's, that's so his great. balance between uh, the foreshadowing and yeah. the, the majesty of there being dinosaurs. Because right. it's still something that you really, really want to work. Of course. Throughout it. You want the dinosaur. You want the park to function. It's something that you would love to go to, you know, if you ever got a ticket. You just don't want there to be any accidents, you know, well, and any the- Dennis Nedry's. Well, it's that idea also that some of the Uh, most uh, uh. beautiful and mystifying (laughs) things can also be some of the most terrifying things. Of course, that's that's the majesty of life. Well, it's like... No, it's the the idea of beauty... uh, Horror is still beautiful in its own way. Fear has beauty in its own way. Because the the idea is we don't know. I don't even think it's it's, uh, horror at that point. When When the main theme comes out... That's not even horror. That's that's looking through, looking at. I was talking about the movie, not necessarily the music. Oh, okay. All right, that's I, fine. It's the idea of the unknowable is both scary and beautiful. Yeah. Both of which are the main uh, unknowable is a main component in both those ideas. Humans by nature can be equally. Williams intrigued. figured out how to do a short little ten second little, or well, not really that short, but a little thirty seconds of of music and to take that same idea and transform it over and over and over again to represent both. Yeah, that, that flute sounded beyond ancient. It really is something that, that separates you. It, it, it tells you just in 30 seconds that these are two things that should not coexist. You know, <laughs> They're separated by 65 million years. That's about all the information you need. Um, either way, you want it to work because it's just so cool. Um, and that's what the theme achieves. So it's kind of diluting you for all its majesty. It's diluting you for the course of it. When you're introduced to the Brontosaurus or the Brachiosaurus, it it's it looks so good. Yeah. Right. You know? Well, also speaking of these dual themes, a song that Steve pointed out to us that we listened to before we we recorded. There's the a specific theme for when the baby raptor's born. That's and, what I want to get into. And that song, just from the first ten seconds, is both equally parts beautiful and horrifying at the same time this to me is is really the true brilliance of john williams i mean i love the fact that he can write great themes memorable themes in almost every single film make each and every one memorable in their own way 
and tied to the theme, tied to the character. But it's these little sequences here that are, I think, the crux of his talent. It's, it's, it's like you said, it's simultaneous. It's not trying to convey just one thing. It's not that black and it's white. It's not like, Here's either. ominous, and here's... It's, it's one theme that is simultaneously miraculous because you're watching the birth of, of a raptor. Right, but it's also you're watching the birth of a raptor. This yeah. is something that will eat you in due time. Right now, it's very cute, which is the same thing you would get from you know any birth, like the birth of a baby tiger or a baby a baby lion. But this is something that is so separate from you. This is something so early in the evolutionary tree. It's yeah. just it's that mixture of of science with with majesty with ominous, all of that just just mixing in this pool of uh, of terror. It's really fantastic it is one of the more brilliant pieces i think he's ever done just because you you immediately from an emotional standpoint you immediately the minute the song starts you feel both it's It's not one or the other you feel both it has the implication of us playing god i think that's that's really what it carries which is of course the main theme of the movie in any way of course that you know what are we doing here why are we yeah finds a way right (laughs) that's the the turnaround moment i think that even if you were deluded by the opening sequence and and the beautiful big brontosaurus and everything i think this is really the turning point when you see this 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 birth this hatching it really is supposed to be like uh, it didn't help that half an hour ago you were just explained how the velociraptor is the most dangerous thing that ever walked the earth that it has a claw as big as your forearm and i'll just hit you and gut you and it was right. smart. And then, that was the whole thing. It was smart. Yeah. <laughs> that was the scariest part. Because right. we think of animals. And they're dumb. And the only smart animal that's scary is people. But this, this is armored. This has got weapons built into it. And it's smart. And it's, it can outthink you. It hunts in a particular way. It actually knows how and to distract just, you. And it gets you from the sides. Right. I, th- I think the reaction of that Asian scientist really helped also. The whole you bred raptors, and he just nods slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the movie... I have to say that movie made me scared of velociraptors for like at least three or four. Oh, years. for me, I had nightmares about yeah. the T Rex roar. Like I would oh, wake right. up hearing yeah, it yeah. and just T Rex. The funny thing is, the, the in in the movie, the T Rex becomes the hero. Yeah, and, and the, it, it's big, it's lumbering. You don't get snuck up on a T Rex. That no. was the whole thing. It, it, somehow, but raptors. To, to but sneak but up still, that point. scene with the rippling water and the T Rex slowly approaching them, and then them having to not move. That use of silence with the low rumble that Steve was talking about before yeah. is just as iconic. And then oh, the yeah. stupid girl just flashes a light in his eyes and is like, "Oh." Well, maybe I'll eat you now. There was movement. <laughs> There's something yeah. in there. Well, of course, when when a large animal is present on screen, you're not going to have quiet music to accompany that. It needs to be lumbering. And yeah. I think that's the whole, that's what, the only word I would use to describe the main theme of the film. It is kind of lumbering in a way. I see graceful. flocks of yeah. large is, creatures. It's graceful, but deep. It does yeah. have grace about it to, to represent the elegance of this, this ancient beauty. But at the same time, it does have a very deep idea because these are quite literally larger than life. These things are stories tall. These are the biggest things that ever existed on land. And we don't have anything that even comes close to it to conceptually think about. Yeah. And uh, there's another thing that I think they used uh, to achieve, that John Williams used to achieve that, uh, that effect of being 
sort of ominous, and that was the choir. Again, he, yeah. he, he uses yeah. this kind of sparingly throughout his work. He usually sticks to the core orchestra, but he brings in a choir quite readily throughout Jurassic Park. Yeah. It, it definitely is present throughout... Um, it's a, a very high soprano choir throughout the baby's hatching, uh, yeah. the mm. raptor hatching. Um, it just it just lurks in the background, just between like maybe two notes or so, and all the while, it kind of makes you a little unsettled, because it's kind of dissonant. Yeah. Same with the 30-second the opening. Also, choir, that was more of a, a, a deep, rumbling tenor, I yeah. suppose. And I think that also... It, it was even more dissonant uh, than the one in the raptor sequence. So again, working with dissonance and a human voice, that can really creep you out. Yeah. Especially next to all this, you know, y you tend to separate the yeah. orchestra and the human voice. The second a human voice steps in there, it's like, things got real. But that also speaks to some to what I, I spoke of before. Besides the signature that, that Williams can do, he also knows how to make someone translated into music make an idea translated into music create a theme work just for a just for b just for c mm -hmm. for han solo for luke skywalker for indiana jones for aliens for monsters for beings we don't understand and for us he knows how to make a theme work for a person using pure instrumentation an example for that uh in jurassic park that's uh that's Hammond himself. Yeah. He mm, has the a theme, and it, it is very prevalent in the point where he starts getting very nostalgic, and that's the uh, Petticoat Lane. Yeah. He starts describing the very first theme park he ever opened, way yeah. back in Scotland, right? And it, it, it's such this sweet little idea, you know, by compa compare that next to Jurassic Park in terms of vision, that you get this theme that is completely independent, not necessarily related to the main thing, although again, there may have been little hints and phrasing here and there, and it was just this little chimey thing. You you can picture a carousel going around, because it's it's the naivete of how he views the world, that he yeah. could just take this and package it into something that is sellable and theme parky and kids. And not yeah. dangerous at all. Yeah. yeah. Fun, fun, yeah, it, fun. it shows oh, how he stole the you. child. Yeah. I have an I have an example of that, and I'm going to throw back to something we talked about earlier: the uh, wild signals from Close Encounters. It was unusual, discorded, kind of just conceptually out of left field. It was to represent the aliens. A lot of the high pitched noises, a lot of the high pitched tones of Close Encounters is designed to be discorded with the rest of the music to represent these aliens because he's he's imagining them as unable to communicate with us something that yeah. you can't understand mm. and that's, that's yeah. why i i think wild signals is one of the most interesting things he's done because it really is a duality between high pitched and low pitched and the melding of the two and it really gives me the idea of what it portrays in the movie of them trying to communicate and it's an incredible just simple tonal composition yeah can't even deny that. I mean, it's when it comes to close encounters. That's that's just inherently the theme. Yeah, so, yeah. and it's, it's not even the main theme. It's 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 a it's a something. Yes, yeah. it's it's something kind of separate. The same way the the raptor birth is. It it's just conceptually it's to so beautiful, you. and yeah. it's yet it's supposed to unnerve you. Yet familiar. Yeah. The the repetition is what just keeps driving home that it's familiar, and the way one plays off the other and follows it, and it is they play in unison, and one the low end misses it, but the high end goes on, and then the low end just goes dun dun to catch up. 
Yeah. Like, it's that, it's playful, yet definitely There's a familiarity with this Petticoat Lane thing, too. Uh, just because I don't think anybody hasn't been to a, a carnival of some yeah, kind. Yeah, sure. And um, it's supposed to have that carnival feel. Yeah, and because it's so cheery, I think that also hints that you want it to work. You want the, you still even want the park to work, especially when you see no, him, yeah. him lost in thought. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. his dream. It was a very naive dream, but it was a, it was a dream. And it was intended to be a, a, a learning experience for everybody. Like, now we can actually watch these things as naturally as possible. Yeah. You know, see how they actually react. No, it was a learning experience. Well, all right. again, I, I, I have no idea why when they figured out why, why when they bred one raptor, they went, let's breed more. <laughs> I don't know why one raptor wasn't enough for them. Because it's a killy, bitey, stabby kind of machine, uh, uh, animal thing. And you're like, maybe, maybe, maybe we don't need a pack of them. Well, they also bred, you know, a dinosaur that spits acidy glue. Well, they yo. didn't know it spit acidy glue. They thought, oh, that's true. Of, uh, that's true. DNA Dilophos- doesn't just tell you that. Yeah. Dilophosaurus? The thing is, Dilophosaurus, it was one of the best revelations in the book was because they wondered, just from its makeup, they knew it was a carnivore. But they didn't know seat, how. But they didn't know how it would be an effective hunter because it didn't look very threatening, and then they realized, oh, it's poisonous. So that was kind of a happenstance. Why do they, again, why they bred more than one, I don't know. But they did. And that's the whole and, foolishness of the park yeah. thing. It's like, right. yeah, all right, that's a great thing to find out in the lab and whatnot, or in a very, very super enclosed facility. Yeah. But you know, you're going you're gonna to run that little test, like... Oh, it's poisonous. Oh, oh let's make a few more. Yeah. Uh, and not just a bite. Let's not poisonous. even put a fence a there. Spitty poisonous. Go up and pet it. <laughs> so, I, as much as I've enjoyed this love fest of John Williams, I do have. I, wait. I, oh. So we can't <laughs> only talk about the good because he's not always done great things or been associated with great movies. Yes, he has. So he did the soundtrack for AI. Almost am I correct? Uh, I and AI. I I know why you're bringing up AI. He did do AI. Soundtrack. I enjoyed that movie and I know I'm the only one here who enjoyed the I movie. I enjoyed it up until point. The and the twenty. My the biggest ending, problem with the yeah, movie the and aliens. I, I felt I felt the, the added half hour was what, really was, shoehorned. Yeah, and it, it, I, I felt it kind of killed what would have been a much more poignant natural place to end it. But what my biggest problem with it from the John Williams end also is his music is very much John Williams and you expect mm-hmm. a certain thing. And the problem was that movie was Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, line, big, bold, black line, Steven Spielberg. Like, it's just so obvious, the split, that John Williams' music, I felt, didn't hold it together and, in fact, polarized that separation. Well, I don't think that the music did that, though. The music was just as strong as it was in any other film. But you're not not remembering it as much because you were just too focused on the discrepancies. And the big thing, I I will attest to this to the end of the day, is that his music... While, yes, you can definitely tell when listening to the soundtrack where the flip happens, I still found it to match up with the scene work with the actual movie. Oh, of course. Immensely well. And one of the best things he did was he was doing full orchestra work, and at times I thought I was hearing electronic tones. He did something magical with that orchestral work in that movie, which, while not as iconic, possibly because the music was not as good as some of our favorites, but I think it's more just the movie but that, itself. This was, this was more of an really, artsy film. Yeah, and so, it was beautifully artistic. I was extremely, yeah. I was extremely impressed with the way he seemed to oscillate the strings. Not just they—they they weren't just strum. They were oscillating like a robot, and well, it, it 
gave some great theme work to the movie. I think that's fair. I is that, remember that I'm, music too I'm, well. Yeah, I'm being harsh on the music mostly because I was so distracted and distraught by the movie yeah. that the music fell short. Right, but that's unfortunate because they're unrelated. Right, and, I'm, and you're probably right. That's the same if, if unfortunate I to more thing music. that we ascribe to the Star Wars prequels. John yeah. Williams was as strong as he ever was, but we the have movies were not issues. good, And that's fair, but you know what? Unfortunately, these things are so heavily tethered together with how you describe how he works... That if the ba- the movie's bad or unenjoyable, because bad is relative, but if I didn't enjoy the movie, enjoying the music is going to be very difficult. But it did... Uh, Just AI... like bad, unenjoyable music can ruin a movie, yeah. also the other way around. Sure. And uh, one, one of the tracks, I believe, was called Replicas, did a good job of showcasing uh, an, a trick that... I guess it's a trick that Williams seems to do, and that is to take deep tones and to treat them as the idea of the mundane and to use high tones to to promote a feeling of wonder and in replicas he was trying to get across a scene that was explaining these kind of human almost looking human just off robots and he did a great work of fusing the deep tones he 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 was working into just this great high end that he had already been portraying in the movie well see that to me just says that he's he's an astute composer like any other composer should be astute in in determining you know what sounds are really going to affect people in a certain way of course uh high tones should probably achieve a sense of wonder unless they're played in a dissonant manner then they can kind of be a little eerie or a little askew um that's not necessarily like yeah, that's just that's just knowing your audience at that point, and just knowing the way culture works. After a while, we get used to certain things over the many decades that we get them. So we can thank early composers for setting some of that standard. Uh, John Williams is following in the, those footsteps, but he is setting some new standards of his own. Sure. Um, I mean, with certain things, though, there is also like psychological proof that if you play something in a minor key, you automatically think it's. Uh, uh, depressing and sad whereas if you put it in a major key suddenly it's amazing and and happy there was somebody who played uh you can find it on youtube where they took music that is typically very uh, what was the music um i'm blanking on what it was but they played it in a minor key and suddenly it sounds oh upbeat and happy even though it, it was you know originally like uh i i want to say something out loud i can't death think metal which, not death no it wasn't death it was, it was Emo uh, punk? No, no, it was your typical, uh, um, the, 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 uh, like actual uh, classical music, like you know, di- uh, you know. You can uh, tell us. We'll put in the comments. I, I just right. don't even remember. But it was um, to be added. Dun 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 dun. You can do it with so, almost anything, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, uh, but when you play it in a ma- in a major key, it becomes like almost happy and upbeat. And and I want to like do a search on YouTube right now just to find it, but I. I I don't want to take the time out of the the actual podcast. It's yeah, fair. We can tack it on later or post yeah. it on the Facebook page. Yeah. But when you get yeah, exposure well, to these things again, society just gets accustomed to certain sounds. And yeah. yes, there is the core scientific reasoning as to why certain uh, certain sounds do that to us. Of course, playing around from one mode to the other is is an exploration into many other types of emotions, which are infinitely more complex than simply happy or sad. And John Williams is capable of all that. He knows. That, yeah. Yeah. He knows. Almost 
to the T exactly what tone's going to evoke what feeling. That's, At this that's point, his, it's, he knows the story. He yeah. sees the story, he sees the pitch, he talks. He's a visionary. Yeah, sometimes he talks with his director, sometimes he doesn't have to. Sometimes he just gets an idea based on the pitch, and then it's, yeah. He's I'd imagine at this point a lot of people who work with John Williams go, hey John, do your thing. I mean, he's yeah, definitely oh, sure. the name. and I mean, there are other composers who <laughs> are big names, but he's probably one of the biggest. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody bigger. Just to put down the number of blockbusters, him modern and Spielberg composition, put together. No. Yeah. You have some... Danny Elfman is really, really up there. And I mean, so there are... Han, so is Hans, Hans Zimmer. Zimmer but he's I'm more modern. I'm not a modern. big fan of Hans Zimmer. But he's more modern, yeah. you know, and still he doesn't have the catalog that John Williams does. Hans Zimmer has great stuff. And but... in the end, I think he's more he's more akin to the 50s, 60s composers in that regard. I think yeah. he's very, very good at cookie-cutter things. I'm not yeah. saying everything. Some stuff, I'm sure, stands out. But a lot of what I've heard, I can just think, alright, that's your typical action sequence. That's your typical, you know, character is sad or a little bit downtrodden. Right. It's not unique to the, to the thing at play. You could just put it in any other film with a similar type character and it would work just as well. The but, same thing with like Alan Silvestri, who also gets a lot of the big action. He did Avengers, I believe. Yeah, he did the scoring and, for Avengers. And yeah, does Avengers has some good themes in it? I mean, but it, but, it, it it still doesn't. A lot of it doesn't will stand out. It's not as, in the forefront as much. Exactly. Right. I mean, the, the the reality of it is also. I mean, you take Batman for a specific example, where you have Danny Elfman, and then you have Hans Zimmer. Danny Elfman's original version for the, he Danny Elfman did the first Batman, right? Well, the eighty nine. Yeah, yeah, yes. the, the 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 um. That's the first Batman. Yeah, yeah Michael Keaton. Yeah. So that theme is very iconic for for very much. It's a very much the theme for Batman. You associate that theme to Batman. Whereas it was Han, the new Adam West theme. It replaced that almost. But instantly. yeah. But whereas for Hans Zimmer's yeah. theme for Batman in the Dark Knight, which was the best soundtrack of the three movies, mm. is. Is memorable for the hero and the villain, but the hero and the villain themes didn't have to be their themes. If you put a renegade cop and a psychopath that weren't Batman and Joker in that movie, the music would have worked just as well. And that speaks to the cookie cutter yeah. Yeah. style. I agree. And which that's, is and that's necessarily... probably the better of his work. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Which is, Williams... I mean, it wasn't bad. It's just it, it really speaks to that. And and yeah. speaking of, he's one still of... a skilled. Uh, Composer. I'm just going to put that out there. But they, it's like I said at the very beginning. He focus. I think he focuses more on the the interim. Uh, yeah. It's not so much about you know taking the big theme and then interspersing it throughout, uh, which really is what is the did, selling thing. Did, Instead, he's just composition, composition, composition. Work it into the into scene by scene by scene by scene, which just doesn't always hit home. Did you did, respectable? Did but. you know if Hans Zimmer did Inception? Offhand, uh, I think. So, okay. but I well, can't just say because that for sure. That would be the only one I would say of his work that didn't feel as cookie cutter. If yeah, if that's because if that that's theme true, was so penetrating. If that's true, that was that was um, definitely on the on the better side. I just I want to go back a little bit to talking about the way Williams um, understands his characters. Okay. When we were talking about AI and 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 a little bit after that, and I want to talk about one movie that I to be honest I, I had no idea. Was Williams, and that was the terminal. Oh right, if, the, if yeah. I, did, I did not know that at the time. Me neither. And I, I after I listening to I've the theme, is uh, Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks no, I know the airport? movie. I just don't remember. I don't think I've watched it. It no, was okay. great because Tom Hanks's character is an Eastern European who came to New York, and you don't find this till later in the movie. So more spoilers. Uh, he came to New York to get the signature 
of a specific jazz musician. And he's been collecting all these different signatures of all these jazz musicians because his father did so. And he, he's, he's stuck in a terminal because his country doesn't exist anymore. It's the most while ridiculous he was in, plot. While, he was, while he was in the air, there was a coup and his country folded and they became a new country while he was in the air. So he and was he a citizen of nowhere. And the main theme throughout this whole, song, a whole uh, movie is based off of Tom Hanks' character. It's a combination of jazz and what you can consider Eastern European typical almost military style and it's amazing duality between the two because it's just astoundingly blended yeah and that's something kind of unique for him again he doesn't always we've already established he kind of sticks toward the more general themed blockbusters not that there's anything uh you know uncomplex about things like et and uh and jurassic park but still in the end they're very accessible like yeah. I would say that the terminal is a little bit more akin to an independent film. Yes, absolutely. Opposed to an IFC totally. or Sundance Certainly. kind of thing. Um, for that, he may have equally been a little bit out of his element, but it just goes to show he's incredibly flexible and yeah. versatile. And yeah. versatile. Yeah. I mean, I think I think kind of what we're getting at is that this is not a critique of John Williams because the scope of John Williams is so ridiculous, and 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 the the reality is he's a five star composer. The overall catalog. <laughs> the overall catalog. Everything just, he's ever done, five. Well, it's just... Undin- <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we can find flaws if we took a fine-tooth comb, but the reality is he knows movies, and that's what he does, mostly. And that's... He's crafted a skill and, and an ability that's unlike any other composer out now. He has esoteric ideas and familiar nature... But every single thing he does is not boring. It's not tired. It always, even familiar pieces seem fresh and new. And engaging. And just, at times mouth-watering, at times alluring. It's amazing the variety that, not just the movies he works with, but the variety of what he can just make a single sound sound like. Yeah. And then there's just the amount of work that goes into being a composer right. the meticulous nature of making sure every single section falls in its place every little note falls in its place every little chord aligns the way you want it to align it's probably one of the most meticulous jobs i can i can think of um but and yet all the while as scientific as it can be sometimes you need to maintain your artistic integrity throughout that's that's the real amazing thing there and the uh, most interesting thing with him is he, he becomes his own commodity because in many cases, while you might get, you know, certainly in the modern world where things are licensed out, you might get the license to one of the movies, but if you want to use his music, you need a separate license to yeah. acquire that. Well, the well. idea that, like, for example, Lego has made a career in the last decade of making video games based on Lego versions of movies. and Or just intellectual uh, or property. Or pop culture. And so they did one of the first big Lego games they did in the early Xbox generation was Lego Star Wars. Yeah, that was the first. It was the first. And the Lego Star Wars game had the entire John Williams score. Yeah, and they had to license it separately. Well, if you're going to yeah. do Star Wars... You need the music. Yeah, that's kind of part and parcel. Yeah, I'll take one other... Again, it's not a critique necessarily, but it it's something to think about. You're comparing John Williams stuff against, you know, the independent artists who release their own work for the sake of their own work. It's, it's, I would almost make the claim that John Williams does have a little bit of a leg up because he is, after all, given the pitch. It's just like you said, he is a visionary, a visionary for what he's given. 
again, I don't really know too much of what he's released outright. Um, the closest thing, you know, he he'll come up with themes. For instance, he kind of, he came up with the NBC theme, right? For their yeah. for their uh, NBC News tonight, which is um, also so iconic. That's again incredibly iconic. But still, he's given the criteria of you know we want something newsy, sounds kind of serious, sounds very sincere yeah. to the public. They want serious news. You know, yeah. we're not trying to BS anybody here. These are all ideas that he he's given to stew around within his head. And then he's a translator. He can make that into something that uh, people can recognize. Right. Um, I don't know if he's come up with things that he's written just for the sake. I'm, I'm sure he has, but his career is bent around uh, the ideas that he's given. It's a trade for that reason. Sure. Um, it's it mar- warrants the same amount of talent, the same kind of thing, but. You know, in terms of visionary, you just need to make that distinction between those right. two different types of visionaries. Well, and the realistic thing is what Nate said. He's a commodity. He is yes. absolutely a product now. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the biggest in music history as far as scoring goes. I mean, exactly. he's done he so also, much But for scoring. that reason, he also can't run the risk. You know, we often run to this issue when we're going through discographies of different bands. You know, we come across this album we want to rate it fine but then we're looking at their previous work and we gotta be like yeah they really went downhill you know right. considering their previous thing well that was a completely new project for them new yeah. and visionary and yet some people are holding them to their old standard some people are holding them to a you know go, go new be you know give us something fresh and original that kind of standard and in the end well where are they supposed to fall? Yeah. Which who are they supposed to listen to? Again, all they can listen to is themselves. And some people are going to love it for them. Some people are going to hate them for it. John Williams can only be original because of the new original people that he meets, giving him new and original ideas. Yeah. It kind of keeps his mind fresh. He's eighty-one years old. <laughs> if that is any more of an explanation, I don't know what is. I'm putting this out there on the air. Don't know when we're going to do it, but eventually, we are going to do a Star Wars month. Where for three weeks, each week we will do each soundtrack of the original trilogy. We will review... It would probably be um, auxil- auxiliary to the podcast. Right. I imagine. Like, but we, I want to do the Star Wars soundtrack. It's one of the most iconic sci-fi soundtracks of all time. Mm. And I would like to sit down and actually go through it. Ooh. Try and find flaws. That's right. I'm because curious. The thing about this, this is I almost would... like an intro This, this uh, today. It's, yeah. it's, it's, this is John Williams' work at a glance and just why certain things yeah. work, why certain things don't. Of course, and, to really know and there are other, back to what we do best. And there are other composers that we want to talk about as well, like Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer. I would actually like to do the entire Lord of the Rings work thus far. And who did that? How many days do you have? Uh, <laughs> I mean, per, true. Because you were going to need 24 hours per soundtrack. Yeah, pretty uh, much. But I, as a suggestion, days old a suggestion for Star Wars... <laughs> I think it might be better to space them off like once um, every month, every oh, other month. Oh, not do them all back to back? And actually do all six movies leading up to the newest. Of the ones that are coming. That's not bad. We could do that. Sprinkle it over the next year. Ideas out there. And But we would have to do Star Wars, Empire, Return, and then go back, back. to the people. Right. And the order of which they were made. John, not, the, not mic, the mic is standing right there. Oh. <laughs> now we're all to that. Yeah, well, no, I think I think we should do it. I think we can. I'll do the math to figure right. out what... Because I don't know when the movie's now, coming out. Or, sorry, are, are we going to do the... Are we, I'm including myself all of a sudden. You uh, are welcome. More than welcome. This is going to be auxiliary. Can... I'm assuming you know Star Wars. That's I think why you're you might here today. Have you I might John know a little bit of Star... There's, there's a possibility I might know a little bit 
to everything about Star Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know everything. It's somewhere. I know. There. I know many things. Uh, <laughs> but um, are we just finding the original trilogy? That is the original theatrical release soundtrack. My father has all of them on vinyl. Uh, I love your father. All of a sudden. Because, um, yeah, because uh, unfortunately they only released in recent times the special edition. So if you want the wonder that is the Yub Nub song, you're stuck with, 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 without it. I actually have the original theatrical soundtracks. Good. As well uh, on right. CD. I need oh, copies. I'm envious of all of you. I do not yeah. have this stash in my house. I, 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 <laughs> I need copies of, of at least return of the jedi because i would like having lopty neck and uh which is of course the original size noodle song and celebrate the love or the yub nub song depending on yup nub yeah yes. I'll, I'll take that Chase too uh, i'll take that also yeah. so we have a we little, don't have the little business tra- uh, transaction going i don't know if that actually counts because it isn't it, it's only sort of lyrics it's in a foreign language um sure. also uh this week no spam we're spam free week oh, no i do have a spam oh do you yeah. i thought you hadn't pulled one up yeah, the spam is question mark. Did we really get a spam comment that was just a question mark? Yes, and you know who it's by? Who? Two question marks. Really? Yeah. How do you make that an email address? Interesting. That's kind of ridiculous. It's yeah, I don't Riddler. know how they made that an email address. That's a really good question, <laughs> that, but that's what was there. That's skill. Yeah. That's that thinking outside the box right there. That's, Hell, I'll that's even really... give you a bonus. There was another spam that was five question marks. And what was that by? Ten question marks? I shit you not. And I think there might have been a space between, like, the seventh and the eighth question mark. Hell. Why? Wait, why there? Because silence when used properly. <laughs> <laughs> what a punch John. I'm not asking Hey, guys, why. you want to know what it sounds like when I punch John? <laughs> He's held his hand up. All right. Um, so as we're wrapping up, A, I want to thank Nate for joining us for My this episode. Pleasure. We will definitely have you back for more pulp culture concerns. I definitely want to get into some of the modern composers, too, because I really do love the the Dark Knight soundtrack and eventually want to talk about and I'm it. I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. As they well as had the great Hobbit music as well. Well, the theme the music for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think The Hobbit was probably even a stronger soundtrack. Some of the earlier soundtracks, again, we would like to do auxiliary podcast for. Sure. But, um... And try to keep modern as we go. It's our, just such a shame because our goal a in the future, when here. we have this thing they call free time, we're going to do additional podcasts. So if we happen to miss a week, we can throw stuff in. So yeah. the idea is to maybe do some of those for that. And we would love to have you back, Nate, for our Star Wars one, of course. I yes. am always happy to come. You guys are great, and I do so enjoy doing this podcast. Excellent. Well, awesome. thank you for joining us, John. You, we, we interrupted the flow, but your pick is next. Okay, uh, next week we're going into Dub Techno Electronica. Oh dear. Oh wow. no. Uh, this is an album by... Ears Bleeding. This is, this is an album I found, I kind of stumbled upon it, and I kind of fell in love with the, the tones of it. It's the auditory version of a toothache. Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So what's the band? The band is, one word, Deep Chord, and the album is Somer. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, also, a real quick shout out. I want to thank um, Save for the Dark Lord. Um, I hung out with him for his birthday at his show the other day, and introduced me to a fellow rapper who opened for him named Hops, who will actually be our guest in January. And also, it's official. I've booked it. The return of Nelson Lugo. He's coming back on the podcast December ninth. I'll get 9th. to meet him. He's coming back on the podcast. He's going to join us on December 9th. It'll go up the week of December 9th. John actually gets to meet him this time. He's going to bring his own album, so he won't have to be lost with an album we've chosen. He's actually right. going to bring one of his own. Oh, um, cool. And one question uh, about this rapper named Hops is Hops hip? He is actually. So he's a hip hops. He is. 
All right. Well, that, that's, hip, in, that's in line. Uh, I thought with perhaps everything he was going to be the hip hip hop and dance. <laughs> Could be both. Bang, bang he did drink beer during his set. <laughs> but um, and then we're working on Four some guests for February and March. Um, so yeah, so you have that to look forward to. So, um, I had to put you on the spot, Nate. Do you remember our sign off? Oh, oh, no, not no. off the top. Then that's we'll do it down the line. Music is life. Finally. No. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> life, life is this anyway, is a train wreck. Sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, the storm I, made us off. Yes, music is life, and life is good. <laughs>